This week on the Saber.com podcast, a look at the Virginia baseball team's dramatic run to the Super Regional, the recent hot recruiting streak for the Virginia football team, and Jeff Sweatman takes the mic for Ortiz at the bat. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, the Saber.com. And here we go with another edition of the Saber.com podcast. We've got Chris Wright and Chris Horn on the line, and we've got a lot to get into uh, this week. As always, Jeff Sweatman, your host. I will uh, try to revamp Casey at the bat as Ortiz at the bat a little later on to kind of close out the show in tribute to the uh, UVA baseball team and their impressive run down in Columbia, South Carolina. They'll be headed back there this weekend to continue the baseball playoffs. And there's a little bit of UVA recruiting news, football-wise, and some other topics to get into as we go along. Gentlemen, how much of the uh, the game did you manage to watch there? It was an epic, just one of those, you know, it was a four-hour baseball game, but every minute was pretty, <laughs> well, most every minute was pretty riveting. And uh, through the rain and just, you know, the crazy rain delay the night before, and what a run for the UVA uh, baseball team down there in South Carolina. Uh, Chris Wright, you want to take it first? I mean, they had never come out of the loser's bracket. So they get their seventh regional appearance under Coach O'Connor, but had never done it where they had to come out of the the opposite side after losing that first game. And, you know, the way they lost the first game too, you know, they were leading going into the sixth, I think it was, and South Carolina got three in an inning and ends up winning four to three. That sends them to the other bracket. And now you know they're going to have to piece together some pitchers are going to have to like, probably going to have to score a bunch of runs in one of those games. They might have to bring Abbott back on short rest because he would have a bullpen day at some point anyway. And if your season's over, then what, you know, what are you 70%? You know, you knew you might see him. It's all these moving parts of coming out of that side where you have to win four in a row to get that done. So really the, the stage was set for potential drama, but by losing, by losing Friday. Right. But I wrote in the little recap of the weekend that, it matches the theme of the season too, right? They were left for dead back in late March, early April, where it you know it looked like they just weren't going to be able to put it together, even though they had looked pretty good in 2020 before it was shortened or canceled rather. Preseason yeah, the, expectations and all preseason that. Preseason expectations. Yeah, they're four and 12 in the ACC at one point. So they certainly, uh, if they weren't left for dead, the, um, the buzzards were circling or whatever. So Coach O'Connor has referenced several times in the last couple of weeks about talking to them in Atlanta, just for that Georgia Tech series, like, listen, if if you want to make the tournament, which is why you all came here, here's what's going to have to happen, right? I think he just matter-of-factly laid it out. And coaches, you know, you have to pick with your team, because all teams are different, what do you think, what button do you think? <laughs> you know what I mean? And he clearly found the right one with this team by being matter-of-fact and kind of challenging their, their you know, the resilience. Like, what will you respond now that you're down all the chips are on the table. If you don't win pretty much every series here on out, you're done. And I think uh, I think they lost one more against Louisville. But yeah, once he kind of laid out the chips in Atlanta, this team really responded. And that set up what was the dramatic uh, kind of similar story this weekend where you're, you're pretty much expected not to come out after you lose on the road and go into the loser's bracket. But here they go again, <laughs> uh, pulling the comeback act. Well, and Chris Horn, this was kind of a unique situation, right, where you have South Carolina – hosting this particular regional but they weren't the highest ranked team ODU was the the highest ranked team mm-hmm. in the regional as the number 15 team in the country so the favorite was ODU but based on their stadium and things they weren't they didn't even apply I guess to be the regional host right something like that 
Yeah, I think ODU. Uh, I'm not a an expert, but I believe their um, their home stadium didn't meet the standards. I think that you have to have to be able to host. So it's kind of a double whammy, as you mentioned. ODU's number one, and then but you have to go to South Carolina, the number two seed, and and play against that crowd, which <clears throat> is daunting. But if you can get through it then I think it's an extremely valuable experience moving forward in terms of uh, adding to that resolve and toughness that they showed toward the latter half of the season. It was just a phenomenal regional all around. I mean, every game from every team, it seemed like, was very competitive. Just a battle um, each and uh, to use a, one of Tony Bennett's favorite terms, just a battle every game. It, seemed, it felt like, I mean, it felt like every inning was just a gut-wrenching <laughs> which is not good if you're a fan uh to to have to endure that from for uva for five games but but yeah i mean just uh especially you know what obviously uva lost to south carolina that first game and then the second game against jacksonville didn't start off very well it seemed like it was going to be a shootout which is not what you want so things were not going well but every pitching performance it seemed like after that start, you know, Nate Savino came in and had four innings, I believe, held him to one run. UVA's offense was able to overtake that game. And then obviously the performances after that are like Matt Wyatt, Brandon Neek, Stephen Shock, Devin Ortiz, of course, yesterday. I mean, it was just phenomenal pitching performances that they, that they absolutely had to have. I mean, heading into uh, after after they beat Jacksonville, I mean, you just you, again, as I was thinking coming in, you have to have somebody who we don't know who's going to rise up. Somebody's going to have to rise up, and probably more than one person, and that's what happened. You had Matt Wyatt rise up, Brandon Neek, and then of course, uh, you know, Devin Ortiz's special performance. But yeah, it was just a, I mean, going getting making it through that regional. I think any team that made it through that regional again it was so competitive and again so gut-wrenching each and every game uh, I think that's got to bode well moving forward you know we'll see I mean it's college sports so we'll see what happens but uh, yeah it was just a phenomenal regional regional to watch we'll circle back to baseball in a second but can you be a Virginia fan in the postseason lately and not expect nail biters <laughs> I mean between the lacrosse titles the the you know back-to-back with the the gap year the basketball title <laughs> baseball regional the soccer, right? Even the soccer for the women went to penalty kicks. Like you cannot be a Virginia fan and not expect some late game drama at this point. <laughs> yes. So I, th- I think that shows, like you're saying, Chris Horn, the uh, resiliency of the fans to, to a certain extent to be able to kind of come back and maintain their health in these uh, situations. We're, you know, we're more even keel about it maybe now than, than we used to be. But that sounds like a great message board question. Have, yeah. is your conditioning better you know what i mean like athletes like they're talking about uh pitching ortiz midweek in case they ever needed him like in inter-squad scrimmages so fans are they getting getting their reps and getting more used to it <laughs> yes yes well even jacksonville being in this this regional you know they were 16 and 34 on the year but somehow won the uh the tournament they were in with liberty and the same coming out of the same conference as liberty who then goes on Liberty beats Duke twice. <laughs> and so they're into the, uh, they, they were going to make it into the next round. I think they fell short in that their final game there in, in their regional. Uh, I can't remember who beat them finally, but they, they were right on the, the cusp there of getting that far too. So a lot of good college baseball in the, uh, the state of Virginia for sure. And, and ODU, man, they were tough and it, and it had such a, a good regional um, and it, it's just one of those things you get that second chance, even though you lose your first game and 
They were able to pull off the win against Jacksonville 13 to eight. Then the who's, you know, winning in South Carolina at, <laughs> at their home stadium, three to two, just, Great, Let's start today. Uh, that that was the the birth yeah. of of the viral video. Was that one the the yes. win against South Carolina? You know, Stephen Shot comes in, shuts them down the last whatever two two innings or so. Had five strikeouts down the stretch against South Carolina, in a one run game on the road in front of the home crowd elimination game. So he pitches so well, they have him on the ESPN you know whatever channel it gets bounced around to. They're asking him, you know, questions and stuff. And so he, he starts talking about dipping dots. And and now it's a thing. It's all over the internet. It's on Twitter. It's on our message board constantly. Even the dipping dots official Twitter account is in on it. Right. So like this is where that whole name, image, and likeness thing comes in, right? This is yep. this would be an opportunity for a student athlete to potentially use his image, yada, yada, yada. But we can steer clear of that conversation for now. But that that video, just crazy interview, right? Like. And that's when you start touching like the casual observers, right? Versus, you know, we're watching it for work and for fun because we're Virginia fans. But, you know, there, there are some people that don't watch it at all. And then they see this video and, and how funny it is. And even my wife was was laughing last night when I played it for her. Like, <laughs> I was like, you got to hear this interview. And the whole like, does anything make you nervous? Caves. <laughs> Caves. And his delivery is priceless. So whatever happens with the rest of this uh, run, he is now a folk hero here at Virginia and honestly has a career. I mean, he, maybe he should be somebody's social media manager or something. You know what I mean? Wouldn't you love to yes. have him running your social media account if you're, a, if you're a brand of some sort, right? Because he even posted, like, after his big – he goes viral, right? He posts on his Twitter yeah. account. Man, big day, big day. And then congratulations, Harry and Megan, on the birth of your baby, <laughs> the, the new royal baby, right? So he wasn't even talking about his big – yes, I would hire him to run social media if I was somebody <laughs> – well, it's such a great story too. I became a fan of his when I, I learned that, you know, he had really been a fan of UVA growing up and wanted to come here and for whatever reason didn't work out. And so he ends up going to a couple of different schools. And then for his final year, you know, last year is going to be his, his grand finale. And then of course the, the pandemic happened. So then he's coming back, you know, this year is kind of this bonus year where he's just, you know, riding the wave basically. And that unique delivery and it's tough he's like they said on the broadcast he, he's got a rubber arm apparently he could just stay out there and, and normally your closer you only want to get the, the final inning maybe another out or two beyond that but he's been going multiple innings and and really just grinding and finding a way to to get through it but yeah he came in with two outs in the seventh in the South Carolina game uh, that Matt Wyatt had been such a surprising you know Second year, second start of the season, he came through in, in a big way, five shutout innings, and that kind of set the tone um, in that elimination uh, game atmosphere and the who's were kind of on their way from there. But you still got to beat Old Dominion twice, right? Even after all of that, <laughs> and they managed to do it. So the Sunday night game was crazy. It's raining. This is all cinematic to me. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> the rain and you can't really see the rain, but then they cut to an audience cut and there's like puddles in the in the stands it's like all right well and then in comes brandon neek dealing you know what i mean like he was straight up dealing he was and that overshadows griff mcgarry that's what i was gonna say yeah it was the friday night starter in the pandemic year kind of falls out of the rotation then comes in throwing heat well he gets a cut or a blister or whatever so they have to go to the bullpen and the longest that neek had really ever gone in his career was roughly two innings 
And now the next thing you know, he's had a hundred pitches roughly and still just chilling, <laughs> just chilling out there on the mound. It was crazy. Yeah. Quite a performance. 24 strikeouts. I mean, it was just amazing. It was like covering that game. You didn't, that didn't really register with me until like after the, I was like 24 strikeouts. <laughs> There's like, only 27 yeah. outs in a game, right? <laughs> yeah, and Nick, uh, yeah, he came in and, you know, he was a top heralded recruit coming out of high school, chose to go to Virginia. And I believe uh, uh, Coach O'Connor mentioned he had uh, shoulder surgery, so he's worked his way back from that. And in the few appearances he's had this year, he's looked pretty good coming in, like under control. Coach O'Connor mentioned his poison demeanor, but yeah, his his stuff was outstanding, and he he wasn't phased. I mean, just every every guy that had an opportunity, it seemed like to rise to the occasion, did, and, and even that's just an understatement, really. And then, and of course, Stephen Shock, big winner of the weekend, he rose to the occasion with his pitching, and then also with the post game interview. <laughs> that you know, so he's he's a huge winner from this weekend. But it was just a unreal weekend again uh, for for Virginia baseball. It's just yeah, I mean, it definitely goes down in history. What whatever happens from here on out. Brandon Neeks, sixteen strikeouts, tied yeah. for third most single game in in program history. All right, Andrew Abbott has done it as well. So that's two pitchers on the same staff have two of the top three strikeout performances in program history. But to do it in an elimination game in the rain just adds to the whatever, the legend of it. <laughs> well, that name's going to come up a bunch over the, the future years when people are talking about, oh, it's an elimination game. We need a Brandon Neek type performance. Yeah, I mean, coming in and when he came in, bases loaded situation, ODU's making their run, high pressure situation. And uh, he, he did he did yield a run. It was a graded bat by the ODU uh, uh, player. But after that, I, I believe he got a, a strikeout to, to end the inning, I think. Well, chances are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the odds <laughs> are. <laughs> but then what he did after that, just amazing. He did look uh, pretty gas at the end when the chopper to first and he had to throw it to throw it to first. That was kind of like a he looked a little tired there. So I was getting slightly worried there. But that was no, it was just, uh, I mean, unreal performance. It's, just, it's hard to put put that really into words. It's just so unreal. Well, and it's funny, guys. I, I have a buddy out west who's a big baseball fan, and you know, I knew he probably wasn't paying attention to this game that I was watching. But Griff McGarry, from the start, I mean, he was on fire, throwing ninety nine miles an hour. You know, and I was like, you might want to take a look at this uh, <laughs> this UVA game that's on right now because, I mean, first three innings, it looked, had the makings of one of those games where you're like, this guy might put together, you know, some kind of if not perfect game, you know, it, he's just unhittable right now. So, but he gets into the fourth and gets that blister issue. And, you know, I, I was like, Oh, kicking myself. I'm like, did I really do the sweatman jinx again? Like telling my friend to watch the game. And then he, he mysteriously all of a sudden can't get anybody out. He's walking people all over the place. <laughs> so I was going to take that one on myself if, if it had gone pear shaped there. But, uh, but thankfully Neek came in and, I think the big thing was he shut the door pretty much right away. You know, if, if they get a couple, if they get a run, a couple more base runners there. I mean, I think he got out of a base. Yeah. He took over with bases loaded and then, you know, he did walk in a run, but then from there it was just, he, he had 19 career innings pitched 19 career with all the injuries these last couple of years. So here he is a third year. They, they keep him in there for five and two thirds scoreless relief incredible so 
shout out both to Brandon and, and Griff. You know, it was unfortunate. You hate to see a guy go out like that with a, with just a, a blister causing that much of an issue. He had blood all over his uniform and stuff. And it was also interesting because the pitching coach comes out, looked to me like they didn't even look at his finger, at his jersey. Like he's got blood everywhere. They, the pitching coach basically just keeps, tells him to like get somebody out here. <laughs> and then they go back to the dugout. He walks two more guys, and then they bring in Neek. So that was, that was interesting. There were all kinds of wrinkles because, you know, when you're in those elimination situations, you got to pull out all the stops, right, to keep the season going. So the national commentators have been saying like, wait, this guy hasn't even, you know, Ortiz has pitched two innings the last two years. What? <laughs> all of that was just <laughs> prologue <laughs> right, you know what I mean? right. for the actual game seven of the regional which gets delayed by rain ends up being the only only game left of this round of the tournament moved to 9 a.m to try to get in as ahead of as much rain as possible and then ends up playing through the rain anyway so two games in the rain but then Devin Ortiz two, two innings pitched all season you know has a shoulder injury that doesn't let him play first and can't really you know so he's only been batting recently as a designated hitter but they had been pitching him in the middle of the week. And, th- and that I thought was one of the more interesting stories that came out from coach O'Connor yesterday was in our inter-squad squ- scrimmages, midweek scrimmages, we've been giving him an inning here now two innings. And he said a, a, a week ago or two weeks ago, we extended him, and he, he was pitching. Well, we just went ahead and gave him a third inning in our inter-squad sc- scrimmage. And he's recalled sitting in the dugout at, at Davenport talking to, to Devin Ortiz. And he said, Ortiz is like, hey, why did I go an extra inning today? And it's like, well, if we get in a situation in the in the regional and we need, you know, an extra game because we're coming out of the losers bracket, you're gonna start. So we're we're prepping you to get extra innings just in case, basically. Right. So they already had in the back of their mind what might be necessary. And they were gonna put the ball back in his hands. You know, kind of uh, Hazley vibes there, where position player mostly, but you put him put him in, in a huge situation and he delivered four scoreless six strikeouts, had to gut his way through a couple of situations. It wasn't pristine. You know, you got Old Dominion starter was cruising at that point through those four innings, 12 up, 12 down. It wasn't that pristine for Ortiz, but it was the same score. It was 0-0, and that was huge, I thought. Yeah, for sure. You could tell he was having a little trouble with controlling the fastball, so he just kept kind of going to the curve, and he was controlling that better, and those guys couldn't hit it. So it was like, yeah, let's just keep, keep going with what's working, right? <laughs> Yeah, he showed some pretty good stuff. And then, you know, Stephen Shock's uh, relief appearance after the eighth inning when ODU took the lead, it kind of looked to me like he was done. Like, like yes. he had not much left. The, I was actually, frankly, surprised he came back out in the ninth. But then he comes back out in the ninth and the tenth and allows no runs and allows UVA to uh, to get that storybook Devin Ortiz uh, walk-off homer in the bottom of the tenth. So that was, you know, just guys gutting through – gutting through these efforts and just doing what they had to do to, to, to win again, just, uh, just unreal performance again. Yeah. I thought, again, I thought Steven shock was after that, after ODU took the lead, I thought he just didn't look like he had a lot in the tank. Uh, skies opened up and the sun started shining. And I guess that kind of helped UVA uh, push to victory at, you know, helped obviously that UVA was able to, you know, answer in some of these big situations. You mentioned uh, when ODU cut it to five to three in the uh, uh, game six, um, UVA was able to answer in the in uh, the very next uh, half inning 
uh, add a run to make it six to three, which that definitely helped. And then UVA, of course, able to to muster up thanks to two wild pitches, granted, granted, but muster up, uh, you know, to to tie the game against ODU in the bottom of the eighth. And, and just kind of keep it going, and then and then they just made the plays from from there on out. So I just got goes. I mean, it's just hard to to advance in these things. Just uh, you know, I think UVA fans have experienced a lot of success, but uh, you know, in Coach O'Connor's tenure. But it's just these are hard games to win, and especially this year. Again, this was just a super super tough uh, regional in pretty much every game. So it's going to be interesting for me to see how that translates to. Dallas Baptist uh, coming up this weekend. You mentioned the two wild pitches. That That's a thread on the message board that Ortiz pulled one foul against their closer. And one of our more prolific baseball board posters who played baseball here at Virginia was saying that that foul, that foul actually seemed to rattle the reliever because he started maybe overthrowing a little bit. And sure enough, two of those overthrows, wild pitches that helped Virginia score. And then I thought that the catch rule was a football thing, but that double play gets reviewed because of the catch rule, which I did not know existed in baseball because he pinned it or whatever he, the rule is where he didn't cleanly possess it or, I mean, whatever. To me, like, here's, I think it's a dumb rule. I'll just say it. Like, the ball never dropped. <laughs> he had it some way, shape, or form. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, hey, the rule is you have to cleanly catch it. You could clearly see on the replay that he had pinned it kind of, and that eliminates the double play. Well, they have a hit and run steal sort of call on next that pulls the shortstop over single right behind uh, where you got, you pulled the shortstop by running the guy that should have, or could have been out if not for replay. So a big moment there too, that seemed to just fortune smiling on Virginia. Right. I thought one of the key plays uh, of many in that game, just a weird game in, in a lot of ways, but Logan Michaels getting that double off the, the pitch. That was the first hit, you know, ruined the perfect game. And then the only hit that guy had given up, so the, and then they took him out. I think I got the sense that Old Old Dominion wasn't really expecting that kind of outing from that particular pitcher, so it was just bonus. And they wanted to bring in their their solid reliever they had counted on all year, and kind of like when UVA brought in their best pitcher, and that's how Old Dominion got their first run. It, you just never know. Like you can use all the analytics in the world, and <laughs> it all looks good on paper, but. Right. That, that part, uh, <laughs> that part stirred up some comments too. And I know that you were kind of like, huh? Right. That, that run scored, he jammed him. Andrew Abbott comes in and he's was named a golden spike semifinalist, you know, since the regional concluded, but he basically jammed him and this slow roller goes through the gap because analytics shifted, they had shift. shifted the infield. So there was no one there. <laughs> and you can see how frustrated Abbott was that. And the TV commentators comment, commented on that quite a bit that, he typically doesn't look frustrated and there he, he threw a decent pitch and enough to jam the guy and it rolls through the gap that, <laughs> that you had left there. So yeah, I know well, you were ranting about shifts a little bit, at least in your head. Yeah. It's a little bit like, you know, the Tampa Bay they, in the world series this last time they had their analytics and their, their starter hadn't really gone, you know, even six or seven innings the whole year. And, but man, he was cruising along. And as soon as they took him out, that's pretty much where Tampa Bay lost the world series. So you can, you can outsmart yourself uh, in the, in the dugout uh, a lot of times and being a White Sox fan, there's been a lot of pushback on Tony LaRusso's various moves this year, now that he's back in the game, but uh, he's the second winningest manager all time. So it's a little <laughs> tough to uh, <laughs> question too much. And obviously uh, UVA has had uh, plenty of success here with the current regime. So 
Yeah, I thought I thought it was uh, you know with Coach O'Connor what he said about Devin Ortiz. You know, obviously analytics probably wouldn't tell you to start him, right? But he just knew what kind of a gamer he was, and that he just had a feeling that he would come out and do, you know, hopefully do as well as he could, but that he would come out and 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 do well, and that's what happened. So, yeah, uh, I think some some managers and coaches can go all in on analytics, probably to their own detriment as you meant as you gave an example there but yeah I think coach O'Connor with that and just having faith in his guys and again toward the end of the game with shock keeping him in bringing him back out allowing him to finish that as you as you mentioned Jeff uh you know that was his Stephen Shock's dream to go to Virginia and to help me he has mentioned to to go there and help them get to Omaha and he wasn't going to and O'Connor mentioned that he wasn't going to take that opportunity away from him so that's just pretty cool that's just great you know sense of kind of knowing the type of gamers that you have on the team rather than maybe going off of uh, certain analytics or pitch counts or things like that yeah and coming out of picking the guy off too that was an amazing yeah. <laughs> shot play beyond <laughs> his pitching he was able to <laughs> right and apparently maybe the ODU runner went on his own there and yeah you know, shot keeps that somebody called it the Mr. Miyagi crane move, like where he stayed, <laughs> stayed vertical. It didn't break the plane, which would have made it be a balk. So yeah, cr- crazy pickoff move. And it's easy to lose the offense in all of this. You know what I mean? You still have to put some runs up. Yep. And Ortiz had a great regional from that standpoint as well, including obviously the walk-off home run, but he had a two, two run home run in one of the earlier elimination games. He has eight on the season now. He's tied for the season lead. He was the region's most outstanding player because he he hit 333 in the regional. He had other guys too, Kyle Teal, several key hits, including a couple in the elimination game, I think against South Carolina or against ODU. One of those two Sunday games. Some of it blends together when, <laughs> when the <laughs> there's so much trauma going on. But he, he had some key hits. He also had the key throwdown at the plate that kept it to one run on that single that ODU had in the eighth, I think it was. Uh, in the elimination game, he guns him down at the plate, keeps it a one-run game. That was huge. That was huge. So he, he obviously had some big moments. The Geloff brothers, right, uh, yes. had some big moments during during the regional. And you can go on down the line. There were different guys at different times. Tappen had a big hit. Um, that was the one that went through the hole after the overturned double play. So, you know, Coach O'Connor had told the media and he had told his team and given them examples of previous years, like, listen, this is what it takes. You're going to have to have more than one of you step up. And we've talked about the pitchers doing it, but I just listed off what? six guys in the lineup that they came up with a key hit or hits at some point, including the poetic one, right? The, the walk-off, he knows it's gone. He says he typically runs out of the box because he's never quite sure if he got a home run. He said, I knew on that one. And he turns and it, he wants to look at his teammate because they're teammates because they're in the dugout for, for on the first baseline side. Yep. And they're, you know, he's celebrating with them as he's going to the bag and yeah, pr- pretty cool moment for him, particularly because, you know, he's had to grind it here in his career, too. And he's one of those guys that committed shortly after the, the championship year. Right. So you're committing to a national championship team. You have expectations of what could happen there. And then they missed the tournament. And then when it looked like they were back on track last year, the pandemic takes it away. And now, you know, th- this team had to fight to get in. And he's he's kind of emblematic of that whole story and then becomes the most outstanding player in the region after sticking that through. So neat, neat stories all around for this team, making it through that, through that loser's bracket se- seems kind of fitting for this particular team story. Yeah, for sure. And just to put it in a little more perspective, the walk-off home run, first in Virginia NCAA postseason history, first walk-off homer in any game in over eight years. 
So if it, it seemed like it had been a while for one of those for UVA, it has been. Yeah, so. K- Kenny Towns against Florida State in the ACC tournament was the last one, 2013. So we all know how clutch Kenny Towns was. So if you're if you're mentioned in in the same breath with him, uh, you're you're doing well from a Virginia baseball fan perspective. And I would say the same for Brandon Neek, right? There's something about the name Brandon, right? Big game Brandon Waddell, who's obviously made it to the major league since showing up in big moments. Like maybe they should just recruit a bunch of guys named Brandon uh, moving forward. <laughs> Connor for uh, for the lacrosse and Brandon for the, the baseball. So good stuff, guys. Well, we're going to look ahead at some uh, UVA football recruiting news next, and we'll revamp Casey at the bat for uh, Ortiz at the bat a little later on. That's coming up here on the Sabre.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Sabre.com. And here we go into the second segment of the Sabre.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn. And uh, you guys do such a great job with the in-depth analysis on uh, all things who's, and especially when it comes to recruiting. Chris Horn, tell us about the, uh, the names that we've heard just in the past week with UVA football recruiting. I guess we'll start from our conversation last week. I know we discussed the wide receiver group and um, its potential. And um, so UVA kind of started the week adding a graduate transfer from Marshall, Artie Henry. And they just announced the uh, that he is officially now uh, a Wahoo, which I think kind of speaks to, you know, we were discussing last week, you know, the guys who are proven and, you know, the that the, the, there certainly is ability in the in the wide receiver core. But, uh, you know, comparing it to past wide receiver groups such as uh, Dubois, Reed, uh, Zacchaeus, those guys, not a whole lot of proven guys. Um, You know, Billy Kemp obviously is one of those guys, proven guys coming back. But, you know, Henry. so Henry's another guy. He's going to be – this is going to be his – he's going to be essentially like a six-year senior. You know, so – He's going to bring experience. It looks like he's got some pretty good speed to him. Uh, so maybe uh, some that, you know, kind of upgrade that a little bit in the in the Virginia receiving core. You know, about 6'1", 175 pounds. Looks to me like kind of a guy who, you know, who can move around. I, I would expect him to be kind of a slot type of guy just based off what I've seen. Um, but I think he can, you know, play, move around kind of like UVA utilizes its receivers. So looks like a solid addition in terms of just – Adding again more maturity, and UVA has been going to the graduate transfer well. You know, is he like going to be a Tony Poljan type difference maker? I'm not sure, but another solid piece again. And again, I think speed is definitely something that he's going to bring to the table. Uh, and then, yeah, football recruiting this this whole month is going to be just action packed. Recruiting is finally opening back up as far as kids able to take official visits, interact with coaches uh, on on campuses and things like that, and so. Every weekend this month is going to be action-packed for football recruiting fans. So lots of lots of kids coming in. This past week, though, June first was the first day that uh, that all this could take place. Davis Lane, who's a quarterback out of uh, a Liberty Christian Academy, took an unofficial visit to Virginia and actually had a workout in front of Jason Beck and Bronco Mendenhall. And obviously, it went well. They offered him a scholarship, and he committed a few days later. So he's another in that quarterback type mold. Um, he's a 55 meter indoor state track champion. So he's got some speed and you look on, on his highlights, he's, he's a pretty elusive runner in my opinion. I think that's one of his strengths. And he was able to show, I think kind of a complete package when he to, to earn that scholarship offer. So he's another guy to put in the pipeline. Uh, by the time he arrives at Virginia, Brennan Armstrong should be a senior. So he'll have a few years to 
develop his tools because uh, UVA's got some other guys in the program. So I think, uh, yeah, I think he is a guy who's going to need some development, but I think he's going to have the uh, the benefit the, the benefit of doing that once he gets to Virginia. And then uh, um, this past weekend, UVA hosted eight to eight or nine official vi- visitors and has gotten a commitment from uh, A.J. Holmes, who's a defensive tackle out of uh, the Houston, Texas area. Uh, Texas has been a state that Virginia's recruited, uh, you know, They've added a, a prospect or two usually in every class in the Mendenhall era so far. And, you know, those guys are look, looking to be pretty good players. Matt Gam came from uh, came from Texas. Obviously, Texas is known for its high school football. He turned into a solid player. Joe Bissinger uh, from the Houston area as well is rising to, uh, to, to become a, a potential starter on the offensive line this coming season. So he's another guy. Uh, Virginia signed two Texans last year, and um, and so they had a, a commitment from A.J. Holmes, a good-looking prospect. And, and defensive line is a, um, an area that Virginia has really tried to tackle the past several classes. Last year they brought – they landed – they signed four guys, so there will be four incoming first-year defensive linemen. They signed three in the previous class, Nusi Milani, who we got to see Jameer Carter, who's looking like a really, really good pickup as a nose tackle. So UVA continues to add athletic, versatile defensive linemen. So it's going to be interesting to see how Coach Mendenhall utilizes those guys here in the coming seasons. These two high school commitments really are just highlighters to me for the program management side of things. One thing I think Coach Mendenhall and company have done extremely well since the time they arrived is make a plan, get a feel for what you want, your, your team or your roster to look like, what certain positions are going to look like, and then start aligning those positions, succession planning, future, right? So pretty much every quarterback they take, it seems like, fits this mold. And then they'll take maybe one that's slightly different, more like a different type of quarterback, maybe a Kurt Binkert versus someone like a Bryce Perkins. But in general, you see this in, in the quarterback recruiting, right? It's, it's clear as day. Ira Armstead, Jacob Rodriguez, Brennan Armstrong before that, and now Davis Lane. It's it's just clear. It's clear as day what the outline is, what the plan is, what the succession planning is. To me, it it just screams how well managed the program is. You could say the same thing about defensive tackle. You know what I mean? Like that's a key position in this scheme because they're going to play a lot of 3-4, 3-3-5, 2-4-5. Well, if you're going to play those schemes, you got to have a guy in the middle there that's capable of taking on often double teams, right? So you need those type of athletic guys that can do that. And here's another one that fits that mold. And you could go right down the list, like Chris said of previous classes, Jameer Carter, et cetera, et cetera, that fit that vibe. And then even if you want to say receiver, this feels a little bit like a Tavares Kelly replacement to me. Now Tavares Kelly is still on the roster, but we think based on kind of what we're hearing that he's pretty much done with football and it is going to be track only. But even if he comes back to the roster, he's in, he's had an injury history. Wicks has had an injury history. Ugo Abasi, another receiver that we thought last summer might come on, has now had an injury history where he's been hurt a lot. Smart to bring in another piece. So to me, I'm always about the management piece. And then Houston, only a couple hours from Louisiana. It's that this little, little band down there that Virginia has started to uh, get a foothold in, in terms of, of consistently recruiting one or two guys from that little sliver of the, of the Bayou Texas type of area. And who knows with, with Davis, uh, maybe he helps with um, Zach Rice who's a five-star offensive line prospect out of Liberty Christian Academy as well. Uh, who's coming in for an official visit this weekend. 
So, you know, I think that certainly uh, it doesn't hurt. I know this uh, last year was Davis's first year at Liberty Christian. He came from Jefferson Forest uh, in Forest, Virginia. But um, so that, that's kind of another interesting aspect uh, maybe of, of, of his commitment. And I believe he is actually taking an official visit as well. Davis is uh, this weekend, along with two other Virginia commitments. Carson Gay is going to be there. Uh, Trey McDonald's going to be there. UVA is definitely bringing in, uh, you know, the committed guys. I'm sure they'll be working on Zach Rice and the other guys that they have coming in, other uncommitted guys coming in on official visits this weekend. But yeah, it's really, it's really nonstop this whole, this whole month for coaches, but also for recruits in terms of, I think it's really kind of, you know, we focus on the official visits on the weekends, but it's really almost like a revolving door. It's like every day it's like, something going on, whether it's, you know, UVA is going to have some camps, but, you know, bringing guy, even if it's one or two guys coming in, maybe for a workout or for unofficial visits, really trying to play a lot of catch up, I think, from the dead period that was, that's been in place since last spring. So basically, you know, UVA missed a whole, and, and colleges and recruits in this class throughout the country missed a whole summer last year of being able to go to camps, work out in front of coaches, things like that. And, and, you know, some guys even missed, you know, seasons and things like that or had seasons cut short. So a lot of catch up and in this month before we go back to another dead period, I believe in July. And then, and then August obviously is when you start really getting ready for the season. So it's going to be an action packed month <laughs> for sure. They're busy. Uh, yeah. It's going to be a busy month for, for coach Mendenhall and those guys. You, you mentioned Zach Rice. That fits the management point too. They've had several solid offensive linemen in a row class-wise now. One enrolled in January, one's on a mission and will enroll later. But I mean, I think you can speak to that specifically. Like here are the, here's the planning, <laughs> like here are the types of bodies, the type of recruits that we're looking at on the offensive line. Yeah, it was interesting. They started you know, when, when Virginia, when the staff first got here, it was almost like they were looking more at like kind of small, even smaller, but athletic type of guys um, like, you know, six, four, you know, 255. But, you know, since then, they've kind of, it seems like they're recruiting bigger, bigger guys. Uh, but yeah, they've had a lot of success, though, as far as, uh, as far as offensive line recruiting, you mentioned the player on on a mission who's going to be there in two, uh, 2022 is Andrew Gentry. And he's the top uh, most highly rated recruit Mendenhall's landed along with like J- Jawan Briggs, obviously who's moved on to, to Cincinnati, but you add him, Logan Taylor, who's a mid-year enrollee, who was a four-star recruit who, uh, um, uh, you know, picked Virginia over Florida, SEC schools like Florida, Noah Josie, who's an Under Armour All-American. Uh, again, the big, bigger size guys like 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, 300 pounds, as opposed to skinnier guys to kind of, to kind of mold. But yeah, UVA has done really well as far as offensive line recruiting. And uh, yeah, man, if they can get a guy like a Zach Rice, and they have other guys, other talented offensive linemen coming in this month as well. Um, Ryan Bear was in this past weekend out of uh, Ohio. Um, and yeah, he's kind of a bear. He's like six, seven, 320 pounds. But yeah, he was in on an official visit. So UVA has got, you know, continues to do a good job of constantly recruiting offensive linemen. I mean, that's a position you really do have to add I think consistently year in, year out, you know, maybe there's a couple of years or maybe a year here and there that you can maybe add one or two as opposed to three or four. But, 
you know, given how that's such a difficult position to project and to recruit, that is a position that you have to have well stocked. And especially from Coach Mendenhall's experience when he got here, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot in the cupboard. So I think he's uh, maybe that that alone has kind of like convinced him to that, hey, we need offensive linemen every year. But they're again, they're bringing in some really talented guys. You add a Zach Rice to like an Andrew Gentry, again, who's, who's the guy on the mission and some of the guys I mentioned as well. Now you're starting to look like a, I mean, you hate to put too much on younger guys, but if they follow through on their potential, you know, that that's a high, high level offensive lineman right there. Offensive line. Well, one more thing, guys, about Davis Lane, you know, coming from that Forest Lynchburg area, you know, not too far down the road, but my that's where my in-laws live. So we go back and forth a, a lot. And um, I see the media coverage down there that's uh, kind of treats the Who's as a is almost, you know, little brother afterthought sort of back page <laughs> kind of coverage <laughs> to some extent, uh, TV and newspaper. But can you guys speak to maybe a little bit of putting it in kind of a historical context of having, you know, I can't recall all that many in the, you know, over a decade I've lived in this area, how many Virginia quarterbacks, guys from the state. And we've talked about how that's not as important maybe as it used to be in the, in the college ranks. You just want to get the best players from all over. But uh, is there... I don't feel like there's that strong of a history of Virginia quarterbacks playing for Virginia. At least not playing quarterback. There's a couple from down that way that that play defensive back, Vic Hall and Juan right. Thornhill, both from that 29 corridor. Uh, Juan Thornhill doing very well for himself, obviously, as a defensive back. You know, there there was a, a stretch there where you had Lalek, Rocco, guys like that. I know they lost at least one to Stanford from the Northern Virginia area. So in, in terms of I think his name was Hogan, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head. But, yeah, I mean, in-state quarterbacks, one, there's not always the, enough high-level ones that Virginia, Virginia Tech, JMU, ODU can all take one, right, <laughs> to play right. Division One quarterback. But, two, like, the Northern Virginia area gets mined by every big-time program. So you're always looking for, for recruits from anywhere. But quarterback in particular is such a specific position that finding a guy from Virginia – in every class is just not probably just not going to happen and certainly not going to happen where they all stick at quarterback Mal, uh, Malachi Fields who we mentioned last week during the receiver discussion played quarterback for Monticello but it's going to be receiver more than likely here at Virginia so yeah there, there are in-state guys that that they come come with but was I guess maybe Rocco was the last one David Wadford was through there so so that Wadford Rocco group after that it's been mostly other guys, Grayson Lambert was Georgia, Matt Johnson's Pennsylvania. Um, obviously, Kurt Vinkert was Florida. Perkins was Arizona, right? So there hasn't been a, a starter here, I think, since the Watford Rocco group from in-state at quarterback. Yeah, I think Phillip Sims came from – he was an in-state guy, transferred in from from Alabama. Uh, well, Jay, Wol uh, Jay Wolfolk as well in the class 2021. He's going to be an incoming freshman. He's a football, baseball guy. Um He's coming in and to Chris's point, you know, he's, he's a guy who is coming in as a dual threat quarterback. Unlike I think Malachi Fields, who I think everybody assumes is going to be receiver to start um, Aiden Ryan, uh, who's another incoming first year played quarterback at James Monroe in Fredericksburg, but he's coming in as a safety. So, uh, but as far as Jay Wolfolk, he's, he's, he's coming in as a dual threat quarterback, but he's also got potential as a defensive back cornerback. And, and we've kind of discussed uh, on this program, just, you know, UVA's defensive back recruiting and how playmakers are needed. So he's, he's, you know, that's 
something I'm looking for. Uh, you know, he's again, he's coming in as quarterback, but he's got talent as a defensive back, and you know, Virginia certainly needs those too. Um, and then who knows with with baseball? He's a really top baseball target, so who knows? Maybe watch out for that ML, MLB draft, and and and, and uh, but also he's going to be he's going to be a pitcher for Coach O'Connor. But yeah, so you have uh, Davis Lane and Jay Wolfolk back to back classes with uh, in-state quarterbacks, and we'll see what happens. Very cool. We want to talk about some uh, basketball recruits that I've seen yeah, some posts that they I was going to say, big weekend. <laughs> yeah, huge. Isaac Squared coming in. Uh, uh, Isaac McNeely, uh, guard out of West Virginia, who has already committed to Virginia, uh, is coming in for his official visit. And shout out to him. He was named Gatorade Player of the Year in West Virginia. Also West Virginia uh, Basketball Player of the Year. So big, big season for him. Now he's off to uh, he's taking a break from his AAU play to uh, come try and sway Isaac Trout, uh, who's a six-nine skilled forward out of uh, Nebraska, to to come to Virginia. So both of those guys are going to be on grounds. And what's interesting, you know, Coach Bennett has not offered a lot of guys in this class of 2022. And at last check, I believe they have, I think, five scholarships available uh, in that class. So it's going to be, you know, it's a very small pool right now. Now, again, I think this summer we're going to have actual evaluations, which uh, again, just like with football, basketball did not have that basically this past year uh, in terms of in-person evaluations, which is so key to uh, the Virginia basketball program. And, and you know, obviously Coach Bennett likes to see those guys in person and things like that. So I, I think that's part of it. But still, five is a very small number. And you kind of want to, especially with, you know, guys not really being able to take official visits, I imagine a lot of kids are going to be making decisions pretty soon. So anyway, but so Isaac Trout has, has been – uh, a top target for the staff for several months. Uh, he has mentioned uh, I, he has mentioned Coach Bennett's in, in touch with him on a weekly basis. He talks all the time with Kyle Getter, who's a new assistant coach um, uh, who transferred over uh, from being director of uh, personnel or director of recruiting. I think uh, switched positions with uh, with Coach Soderberg. I think Virginia feels pretty good about his chances with Isaac Trout, but again, there, there's a you know with him there's a lot of competition. There's in terms of in-state, there's Creighton, uh, where he's taken an unofficial visit um, already uh, in June. He took an official visit to Nebraska this past weekend. He's going to Virginia this weekend. Then he hits Michigan State and North Carolina. So it's not just the in-state schools, really. It's He's a national type of guy. So he's a big-time recruit. Um, again, UVA's put in the time with him. You know, I have reason, you know, in, in speaking with him, I have reasons to think that Virginia's in pretty good position just from the, some of the things he says. First of all, he's got a, a bond with uh, Coach Bennett as far as the Christianity aspect, which is pretty significant. But also, you know, UVA's, you know, they, they like the family type approach that they've used in terms of recruiting him, talking to his family, his high school coach, his AAU coach. They speak anybody around him pretty much. I don't, I don't know about friends or anything like that, but uh, as far as everybody they can in terms of getting to know him. And so he's coming in. He has a good relationship with Isaac McNeely. So it's really going to be this weekend's going to be pretty crucial for UVA. Just, it's just going to be about, you know, he's from Nebraska. How does he feel going that far away? And how does he feel about just when he's on grounds? Does it feel like a like like home away from home type of deal? As Anthony Holmes said, it did. I guess as far as uh, the football recruit. So big weekend on that on that on that front. And then uh, you know, again, I think UVA has got reason to feel confident, but you know, a lot of competition. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this weekend, though. Well, and I think uh, within the hour that we recorded last week's episode, the news broke of Coach K. So we should probably <laughs> mention. Uh, what do you think that you know? 
Shire apparently is the, uh, the anointed one. And we're going to have to endure a, a year long, you know, coach K farewell tour, which I'm sure all the UVA fans are looking forward to. What gift will they give him when he comes to do, do does Duke come to JPJ this year or not? I do. Yeah. Home and home with Duke this year. Oh man. I'm sure we can get him a framed picture standing by the, the final four floor and the, the trophy or something if you want. <laughs> For that one with the, the fat head where the fan is holding the fat head of him making the exact expression that he's making, complaining to the refs. Oh, that's a classic. Yeah, perfect camera timing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great to have that framed and then like, you know, the students can sign it or, or to- maybe Coach Bennett can sign it. <laughs> well, here we are. You know, and you look at Syracuse, I mean, the buddy has what, one more year? And I think his brother has transferred in from the Ivy League for his extra year. And so you kind of figure once the Bayheim boys are, are out of there, maybe Jim Bayheim steps aside. And so you, I mean, this whole ACC, that's going to be a whole new landscape for. Uh, yeah, Leonard Hamilton's older too. Yeah. Although he looks like <laughs> he's found the fountain of youth, but yeah, he is, is older age wise. Is he really? Wow. He has been there a while, I guess, when you think about it. But uh, yeah, he's got that program humming along. What, what do you foresee? I mean, so many things are changing among the with the college football or college basketball landscape here, you know. But it's been what since 2010 that Duke uh, won the conference title outright. So, right. I mean, from a Virginia standpoint, this has been Virginia's league basically since 2014, 15. You know, they've been in the top two or three double by top four category every year, I think, but one in that span. They've won three or four regular seasons. They've won two ACC tournaments. They've won the national championship. So Virginia, this is, Virginia is part of the cream of the crop in this league. That's not going to change as long as Coach Bennett is here, regardless of who comes and goes at these schools. You know, Beheim says he's not retiring, right? He has no plans of retiring. He said that as soon as Coach K announced or whatever. (laughs) And he basically was like, that means I'm not retiring this year kind of thing. So we'll see what comes and goes at these various schools. So we'll see. But as always, my, my constant reminder that this is the golden age right now. And maybe Virginia duplicates it at some point in our lifetime with or without Coach Bennett. But just make sure you're enjoying the day by day, week by week enjoyment that the program brings you know, with him in charge right now. Well, and I mentioned you know, some of the changes, guys. This, uh, I read something about this overtime elite league. And that's so you got that as a rival, even to not only college basketball, but the G League. And they've signed, a, I think, a pair of twins from Florida that were highly recruited. And um, Kevin there's Durant, another professional league as well. Yeah. So Kevin Durant and Carmelo Anthony, I think, are among the uh, investors in the overtime elite thing. So you could kind of see if you get access to guys like that, hyping it, and you can, you know, media outlets can maybe run with that a little bit. And, uh, It'll be interesting. There's plenty of sports networks out there, I'm sure, that would would love to carry those games. And money, money, money. There's there's plenty of it out there, I guess, for for all these various endeavors. Um, that extra per diem. Yes. Extra, extra per diem. Right. Extra dipping dots. You can buy as many dipping dots as you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll do it for uh, the recruiting segment of the show here this week. And again, check out thesaber.com. We do the podcast almost every week. We take our uh, time in the summertime to see how things kind of shake out news-wise, but but yeah, we're revving right back up uh, into the recruiting season here. And I tried to, uh, I had a thought earlier this morning, I haven't fully formed it yet, but it, it's a pretty good rendition, I think, uh, whose fans will appreciate of not Casey at the bat, Ortiz at the bat. We'll get to that next year on the Saber.com podcast. Mm-hmm. 
The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about. You know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate and add something. All right, welcome back to the final segment of the Saber.com podcast. Saber editor Chris Wright in the driver's seat for our Turning the Tables segment. Uh, Turning the Tables, putting Jeff in the hot seat. Also, it was originally music, turntables. This still kind of fits because we just mix it up. So we're, we're remixing different topics here in the last segment. And with baseball being hot right now in terms of winning the, the NCAA regional in Columbia, and it broke their way. The super regional is also in Columbia, so they don't have to travel whereas Dallas Baptist does have to travel. That did inspire Jeff to take a look uh, baseball-wise at what happened <laughs> to get them here, to get them to the Super Regional. And of course, as we talked about in the earlier segment, Devin Ortiz cranking that walk-off home run inspired Jeff's poetry, Mike Knight, I guess. <laughs> and he's going to give us a rendition of Ortiz at the bat. All right. Ortiz at the bat. And I think I tried really hard to make these all 14 syllable lines, just like the original. I took a couple lines from the original, but there's a twist at the end, as you'll see. Ortiz at the bat. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Whoville nine that day. They needed to win or else their season would fade away. They chose as their starter a fourth year who had pitched just two innings. That's right. The last two years, but had a job to do. Wahoo fans got up early for the 9 a.m. affair clinging to hope which springs eternal in orange wig hair. Outs were recorded by monarchs and who's lickety split as we took comfort in knowing we would be last to hit. Columbia, South Carolina was the chosen site where the rains came and went and came again all Monday night. And into Tuesday, rain fell while the game played on and on. Hits were in very short supply until later that morn. Ortiz pitched a gem, only one hit through four innings thrown. Impatient hoos were hacking away, leaving fans to groan. 16 up, 16 down, ODU's hurler was dealing. Then a Logan Michaels double brought a different feeling. The Monarchs went to their bullpen, and for that hoos gave thanks. Last of the seventh, a one-run deficit in their ranks. But this wasn't our improbable journey's muted end. Oh no, we'd have plenty of time for Trumpet's blaring friend. ODU had scored in the sixth after an infield hit. An errant throw advanced him, only stopping for a bit. A steal of third, then Ace Abbott coaxed a two-out ground ball. But where shortstops normally found, there was no one at all. In the seventh, ODU looked like they'd add to their lead, but a shocking Dippin' Dots addict rode in on his steed. He wheeled and whirled like a karate kid crane kick of old, nabbing the greedy would-be thief, a viral moment sold. This same Mr. Shock went viral in his previous stint, post-game when he meant what he said, and he said what he meant. Caves may be his kryptonite or opposite of heaven. Follow him on Twitter at BigDonkey47. Bottom of seven, the Hoos took a lead ever so small. A walk, then a single. Longest single you ever saw. Hit the wall's yellow line, but only one base was taken. The runner from first stopped at third, perhaps a bit shaken. Ortiz hit a single, spun the baseman around at third. The fielder whipped it to second, but safe was the ump's word. The man on third stayed where he was, which was smart at the time. Kent and Tappan got runs in, but were stranded on the vine. Shock struck out two in the eighth, but also walked two Monarchs. 
Another error helped, but the Hoos would still make their marks. By throwing a man out at the plate to stem this game's tide, ODU's two wild pitches tied us at three. What a ride. Several runners left stranded while still in regulation. Extra innings meant Hoos fans had looks of consternation. Ortiz strode up to the dish, no Casey sneer on his face. This humble Who launched that ball at just the right time and place. From a million Who throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the Blue Ridge. It rattled in the holler, I mean, Dell. That good old song of Wahoo Wah will sing it o'er and o'er. It cheers our hearts and warms our blood to hear them shout and roar. Ortiz at the bat. <laughs> Go Who's. Oh, man, good stuff. And check out thesaber.com for all your who's needs.